Section 80 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farno Jahangiri. The World Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 80. A Modern Battlefield. About 1898 by Julian Ralph. The picture of our battles which are produced in illustrated papers are not at all like real scenes at the front. Art cannot keep pace with the quick advances of science and illustrators find that for effect they must still put as much smoke and confusion in their battle studies as when with the old pictures of Waterloo. If this were left out, the public would be disappointed and unable to tell a battlefield from a parade. Lately a picture in one of our leading papers by a very capable artist showed the British storming a Boer position. In the middle distance was a Boer battery, and the only gunner left alive was standing up with a bandage round his head while the smoke and flame and flying fragments of shells filled the air in his vicinity. In the rush of the instant he must have been bandaged, by the same shot that struck him, and as for the smoke and flying debris, there was more of these in a corner of that picture than was to be seen in all of the four battles we have fought. What then is a modern battle? How does it look and sound? Really, the field of operations is so extensive, and the range of modern guns is so great, that fighting conditions have altered until there is no longer any general noise of battle hurtled in the air no possibility of grasping or viewing an engagement from any single point you may hear one of our big guns lose three miles over on the right and another two miles on the left if you are near they make a tremendous noise yet i have not heard an explosion so loud as a good strong clap of thunder the guns of the enemy cough far in front of you and their shells burst within your lines with a louder sound but with no real crash or deafening roar. Our guns at their muzzles create but little smoke, though our Leadite shells throw up clouds of dust and smoke where they fall miles away. Because the Boers are using old-fashioned powder in the cannon, there is a small white cloud wherever one is fired, and a spurt of red sand where their shells dig into the welt. The smoke of war, therefore, and the so-called roar of battle are nowadays occasional, scattered, inconsiderable. Rifle firing has been the principal feature of our fights. It sounds like the frying of fat or like the crackling and snapping of green wood in a bonfire. If you are within two miles of the front, you are apt to be under fire and then you hear the music of individual bullets. Their song is like the magnified note of a mosquito. Zzzz. They go over your head. They finish as they bury themselves in the ground. This is a sound only to be heard when the bullets fly very close. You pick up your heels and run a hundred or even fifty yards, and you hear nothing but the general crackle of rifle fire in and before the trenches. The put-put or wicker drundle-felt gun is able to interest you at a distance of three miles. Its explosions are best described by the nickname given to the gun by our regiment, the Blooming Dough Knocker. Its bullets or shells are as big as the bowel of a large briar rope pipe, and they tear and slit the air with a terrible sound exploding when they strike. 
The firing of this gun was heard all over the largest of our battlefields, and the sound of exploding shells carried far, because they were apt to fall on the quiet outer edge of the field. The whiz that even these missiles make in flying, however, is like the whispered answers of a maid in love, only to be heard by the favored individual who is especially addressed. Thus the many separate sounds are not loud enough to blend. The crowning all-pervading noises are those of the guns and of the rifle fire and on the vast wealth spread over a double line of five to seven miles in length, only those that are very near are very loud. The scene of battle, the general view, is exceedingly orderly. There may be a desperate scrimmage where a company or two are storming a jay, but level your glass on yonder hill, and what do you see? A fringe of tiny jets of fire from the top where the bowers are, and our men in khaki rising and declining, and occasionally firing as they wind their way upward. The general view displays an arrangement as methodical as a chessboard. There are several battalions flat on their faces in two or three long lines. Over here is a battery in perfect order with its limber of horses addressed nearby. Another battery, equally well arranged as if to have its photograph taken, is to be seen in the middle field. A third is on the farther side. The cavalry is sweeping across the world in perfect rank and alignment. There is no confusion anywhere, nothing is helter-skelter or slapdash. I remember only two momentary disturbances of this stern, steady discipline. One was in the afternoon, during the Mother River fight, when a large band of mounted bowers made a flank movement on our extreme right and fired a volley at our immense mass of transport and ambulance wagons, water carts and ammunition trains. The drivers were taken by surprise and fell to lashing their mule teams and horses generally to the accompaniment of high-keyed kaffir yells. The route lasted but five minutes or less and was comical beyond description because the leading mules climbed over the wheelers and the faster the bullets fell the louder the kaffirs yelled and the more they plied their enormous whips. The bravery of our stretcher bearer is as much beyond question as it is beyond praise. All historians who tell of the dash and valor of the generals, colonels, majors, captains, and tommies of the army in common justice must also describe how the chaplains, doctors, and stretcher-bearers went in and out of the most hellish fire not once or twice but all through every battle. It is just outside the range of fire that you see and realize the horrors of war. It is there that the wounded crawl and stagger by you. It is there that they spend their final output of energy and fall down to lie until assistance comes. It is there that you see stretchers laden with their mangled freight and sound soldiers bearing the wounded on their backs and in their arms. More certainly to know the brutality and woe of war happen upon a cup J that has just been stormed or a trench that has been carried. Go to such a place today, twenty centuries after Christ came with his message of peace on earth and goodwill to men, and behold what you shall see. Here, said I to the photographer in such a place, I think it was Belmont. Snap the scene, look at the wounded all over the ground, quick! out with your camera oh i can't said he 
It's too horrible. As you please, I said. But it's what the public wants. You read in the writings of those who know nothing of war about the writhing of the wounded and the groaning on the battlefield. There is no writhing and the groans are few and faint. There was one man who was simply cut to pieces by a shell at Magerfontein, and his sufferings must have been awful. He kept crying, Doctor, can you do anything? Another begged to be killed, and the first wounded man I saw kept saying, poor fellow in ever so low a voice, Oh, dear, 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 dear. Oh, dear, dear, dear. But there is much less groaning than you would imagine, very little in proportion to the sufferings. Two things are so common with the wounded as to be almost like rules of behavior. They all beg for water. It used to be cigarettes that they asked for on the Turkish side in the last war in Europe. And they seem always to be made gentle by their wounds. Men of the roughest speech, profane by second nature, cease to offend when stricken down. Well, mate, said one whose leg was shattered. You never know when your turn will come, do you? And another simply cried, Oh, dear. Now and then you heard, for God's sake, get me taken to an ambulance. But no profanity was intended there. Many may wonder how it feels to be wounded. All who had bones shattered by expanding bullets used nearly the same language to describe the sensation. You feel, they said, exactly as if you had received a powerful shock from an electric battery. And then comes a blow as if your foot or arm, or whatever part it might be, was crushed by a stroke with a tremendous mallet. It is much the same in a lesser degree if a bone is struck by a sore bullet. But if the smooth, slender, clean little shot merely pierces the flesh, a burning or stinging sensation is the instantaneous result. Lying six hours in the broiling sun was pretty bad, said one whose arm bone was smashed. But the really awful experience was the jolting over rocks when I was carried off in an ambulance. Another man, an officer, whose foot was smashed by an explosive bullet, said, Look at my pipe! That's what I did to keep from saying anything. He had bitten off an inch of the hardened rubber mouthpiece. That was before his wound was dressed. The relief that is given by the dressing of a wound must be exquisite, for you hear next to no groans or moans after a doctor has given this first attention. In the army of Lord Methuen, the great majority of wounds were in the arms and feet, and by other points and experiences in war are more remarkable. The chances of receiving a wound seem not to have greatly increased with the improvements in modern death-dealing implements. There were more than a million shots fired at Mother River, and yet only about 800 men were hit, while the number of bullets that hit water bottles, haversacks, ration tins, and coat sleeves was astonishing. The damage to life and limb by the excessive artillery fire was next to nothing. On a typical field of battle, the armies oppose one another with orderly masses. Staff officers ride hither and thither. Batteries rumble to and fro at long intervals as they are ordered to take new positions, and in the same way the cavalry appear and reappear on the edges of the field. Stretcher bearers bring the wounded out of the zone of danger, and ambulances roll up, get their loads, and roll away again, all day continually as in ceaseless train. 
Brave privates spring out the wounded and work their way back into fire again, now running forward, now dropping flat upon the belt. Skulkers work back to the edge of the field in the same way, a few only, and are gathered up and sent forward in batches by the officers who come upon them. At last the cheer of British victory is heard, and the whole force rushes forward, or darkness falls upon an unfinished fight, and we grope about the vaults, seeking our camps and the food and drink that most of us have gone without too long. End of section 80 this recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fano Jahangir.